You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our readings this morning are taken from Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22, and Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 29. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, okay, so again, as every week, we have brothers and sisters that are joining us on the live stream, so they may be able to hear you through this microphone, so just give them some love. They heard you. They confirmed. So, uh, okay, so let's begin here. A key part of living a vision-driven life is having measurable outcomes. Having measurable outcomes. There's a fly up here that's going to drive me nuts. Opportunity for for the patience, <laughs> like we learned about last week. There it goes. Measurable outcomes. Before you set out to do anything important, you have to determine some really basic yet vital goals. Like how am I going to know if and when I'm succeeding? I'm going to begin an endeavor, but how do I know if I'm, like, arriving? How do I know that I'm moving toward this goal? So take, for instance, the goal, I want to grow in my faith. Kind of an important one. I want to uh, grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. I want to look more and more like Jesus every single day. Perfect. That is the vision of the Christian life. I can't tell you too much about your life, but I do know that God intends that for you. You, But then here's the question, how do we know whether or not this is actually happening in our life? How do I know if I'm growing more like Jesus Christ? How can I tell the difference between a vague dream and reality? Well, the answer is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The answer is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. See, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is the unmistakable, verifiable signs of the life the inner life of God at work within us. The proof uh, that whether, you know, proof whether or not you are born again by faith in Jesus Christ and that you're becoming more and more like Jesus is not charisma, it's not giftedness, it's not necessarily accomplishments, it's not a claim of faith. The Bible says that it's fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, testing me here, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So today we're looking at the fifth fruit mentioned here, kindness, kindness. The measure of your maturity and growth in Christ is kindness. How's kindness in your life? What's kindness look like for you? See, the question that we have to wrestle with this morning is, are we becoming, am I becoming increasingly kind in my life? Because we're always moving one or two directions. We're getting better, we're getting bitter. Am I becoming increasingly kind? 
Or here's a question for us as a church. Is reality marked by kindness? Would someone coming in here today say, this, this is a kind people? And I really re- wrestled uh, through this, this, these questions, and I really began to personalize this and ask this question myself. Like, and and I, I looked at it this way. When someone goes to write my eulogy one day, which will likely be my children, what will they have to say about me? What will I be known for? And the question I wrestle with this week is, will I be known for kindness? Will I know, be known for being a kind man? See, the Bible leads me to believe what will matter far more than my accomplishments, what will matter far more than how popular I was or anything like that will be whether or not I was a kind person. The standard that my life and your life will be measured against is found here in Ephesians 4, verse 32. Be kind to one another. So simple. So potentially cliche that we would tend to overlook it. But I want us to really dive into the depths of this really meaningful word here, kindness. Now, what is kindness? Kindness, well, kindness is a very broad term, and it means a care and a consideration for someone's physical, emotional, and spiritual being. It's a warm, charitable attention to someone's life. It's an acknowledgement that I see you, I know you, uh, and, and I'm acknowledging that your life is significant. And kindness can come in many forms. Kindness can be a kind gesture. It can be a kind act. It can be a kind interaction. It even can be a kind presence, just being present. But I think an extremely important and timely aspect of kindness that we're going to look at this morning and that really we see highlighted here in Ephesians chapter 4 is kindness in our words, the kindness that's present in our speech. Now, there are weeks, I I, I gotta be honest with you, I have to work extraordinarily hard to try to make sure that we are all on the same page, at least about our our, our shared need as people, that we all have this like sin-need thing in common, and therefore that God's grace and provision is the solution. Today, however, I don't think I have to work that hard to convince anyone here that we live in an unkind world. Anyone not convinced of that this morning? We live in an unkind world. And we live in one that's marked by bitterness and anger and just generally destructive speech. I, uh, yesterday, I was scrolling through the next door app, right? Just to see, like, you know, just, just, making, just checking up on all the lost dogs and angry neighbors. And if you're, if you're not convinced about the unkindness of this world, check in on your neighbors through the next door app. And what surprises me most about this whole thing is that this isn't like just like the interwebs in general, like interacting with people across the world. These are the people that you're gonna see on Tuesday afternoon when you wheel your garbage can out to the street. Like these are the, these people that you're being totally mean towards and hateful towards, you've gotta face them tomorrow. And I don't think I have to work very hard to convince us that God's people have contributed to this unkindness as well. That it's not like an us and them problem. We're part of this. It's evident in the words that we speak. It's evident in statements that are made. It's evident in the the rhetoric that just continues to, to be circulated. It's destructive. 
And the term that the Apostle Paul uses for this sort of speech is corrupting talk. And so let's look first at this first point, corrupting talk, found here in verse 29. Now, growing up, I don't think it's common, in fact, uh, I, I haven't heard this in a long time, but growing up, there was an old phrase that we would say to ourselves when we were hurt. It's sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Who actually believed that? <laughs> I've never met a person that believed it. And often, it would be like, we would be saying it to assure ourselves, but it would be said and with like deep pain, like sticks and stones. <laughs> words never hurt me. Like It was like a way of convincing ourselves. But it's just, it's just not true. And the truth is that some of our deepest wounds and most significant emotional scars that we carry into life are probably the result of words that were spoken over us. A philosopher named Charles Taylor described us as human beings as dialogical beings. Dialogical beings. And what he meant by that was that we can't help but define our identity through the words that are spoken into our lives by the significant, significant people around us. We are being shaped through conversation. We are being shaped through words. And he goes on to talk about the sort of haunting nature of these words. He says it like this, even after they, whoever they are, disappear from our lives, the conversation with them continues within us as long as we live. Those words that were spoken to us that we hang on to resound and resonate in our minds and our hearts years and years and years after those people are out of our lives. And a lot of our adult lives are really lived responding to these words. What we do, what we endeavor to do, how we def uh, endeavor to define ourselves, even some of our career goals. I've talked to people that were told early on in their lives that they wouldn't amount to anything, that they were not significant, they weren't loved, those sort of things. And now they've dedicated their life to proving that person wrong. Living this relentless, tiring life, trying by their actions to undo these painful words that were spoken over them. And, and to some degree or another, I'd say that most of us here today are living under the power of someone's words to us living under that power. And that makes sense because we're told in the Bible, Bible, in Proverbs chapter 18, that death and life are in the power of the tongue. This little weird member of the body possesses within it absolute power to bring life and to bring death. Our words are always moving in one of two directions. It's either ministering life or inflicting death. It's either healing or harming. It's powerful. And what we see here in Ephesians 4 is that this destructive speech, outbursts of anger, uh, our gossip, our clamor, our slander, our cutting down, it's not only hurting the hearers, but we're told it's also hurting the Holy Spirit. Now this is a profound passage, and I I'm going to be honest with you, I, I don't fully grasp it. But let's look at it briefly, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. There's something intentional here as Paul sandwiches this verse between verses about our speech. 
Now, have you ever been in a conversation where someone just crosses the line? If you are alive in 2020, it means you have. Where someone says something destructive about someone that you love, or someone says something destructive about a, a particular people group. There are often those times, and probably you experienced it if you were with family yesterday on the 4th of July, there are those times where someone just crosses the line and you feel it in your gut. It, you're, you're saddened. You know what I'm talking about? Yes? Okay. I can't see, I, all I can see are eyes, so I'm depending on your voices. Thank you. So there's that moment where you're like grieved. You're grieved by what is said. And this is what the Spirit, the abiding presence of God, is experiencing whenever unkindness proceeds from our mouth. This is what the Holy Spirit is experiencing whenever unkindness proceeds from our little typing fingers. Now, the statement here in verse 30, uh, I believe it's intended to do it at least two things minimum for us. Sadden us, but also strengthen us. It should sadden us to think that our unkindness has been piercing the very heart of God. You know, whether we've intended to or not, we sadden the Spirit. Think about this. The one who loves us and is so dedicated and, and deeply invested in our lives is feeling the sting of our, our words that were intended to wound other people. The Holy Spirit is caught in the crossfires of our unkindness. It should sadden us, but it should also strengthen us. Because we are reminded here that the same spirit that is grieved is also the same spirit that seals us for redemption. What this means is the Holy Spirit is God's mark of grace upon our lives. The presence of the Spirit in our lives is God's forever declaration that he is mine, she is mine, these are mine, marked out. And this word redemption is a powerful word. It means liberation. And so you put it together, and what we realize here is that the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives means we are marked out for liberation and freedom. And you see, the Holy Spirit, what that means is that he is not just this weak, wounded victim in the equation. It means that he is the very means of God's liberation in our lives, who is both delivering us from the destructive power of the tongue, which James describes as the untamable member of the body. He's delivering us and now transforming us into those who now bring life through our words so that we can bear the fruit of kindness in a cruel world. The Spirit is not just sitting idly by being hurt. He is powerfully transforming our lives. Can I get an amen? amen. Now, I, I've, seen, I've, I've never seen a story impact my children like the movie Wonder. In fact, they, they watched the movie, and many of them then went and, and, and read the book, and, and multiple times, actually. And within the movie, you really see the life and death power of the tongue. It's about, if you haven't seen it, it's about this young boy named Augie. He was born with a medical facial uh, deformity. And most of his upbringing, most of his life has lived in isolation or moderate isolation because of this. But fifth grade, fifth grade is going to be a big year for him. He's going to go public. He's going to go to school and, you know, begin to kind of put himself out there socially. And it's an ostracizing experience for him. He makes a few friends, 
But that all comes crashing down on Halloween. He shows up to school with his mask, and all the kids are dressed up, and he walks into his classroom. The kids, his friends, don't know it's him, and they're saying some of the most harmful, hurtful speech about him, saying things like, if I were him, I would want to die, and these sort of things. And it cuts him deep, and, and it devastates him. And what you see is that these words are able to take all the progress that he's been making and just bring it crashing down. But besides the sort of cautionary tale, the lesson there about harmful speech, there's also redemptive movement in, in the story. And it's that kindness can powerfully overcome the devastating things said. Have you ever noticed how like a hundred encouraging things can be undone by one negative statement? It can come crashing down. But as powerful as these destructive statements as what we see illustrated in the story is that encouragement, kindness, can instill courage in others. And in the long run, kindness is more powerful than cruelty. That's our hope that we have in this world. Kindness is more powerful than the forces of cruelty. And so let's look secondly here at constructive speech. Let's look again at verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but, so he's not just telling us what not to do, but giving us the healthy alternative. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion and that it may give grace to those who hear. Now this is an extremely helpful grid to run our speech through. Think about all of our interactions. Think about all of our words, whether it's in our private life or in our public life, whether it's with our family, our friends, our coworkers, or otherwise. We always need to be asking ourselves three really important questions. It's these. Are these words constructive? Are these words necessary? And are these words gracious? Constructive, necessary, gracious. Now, in case you thought you were the exception, and in case you thought that there were moments that are exceptions, we need to go back to a really important qualifier in verse, pull up verse 29 for me real quick. Israel, are you able to pull up verse 29 for me real quick? Yeah. But only such as is good for building up necessary and giving grace. So here's, here's the takeaway. Whatever the situation, whatever the, the conversation, kindness is always called upon. Kindness is always the fitting response. So let's, let's look at those, those three things in this passage, constructive, necessary, and gracious. First, constructive. Now, I was reading an article on kindness and how it impacts relationships. Now, admittedly, this, converse, uh, this article was about romantic relationships. If you're single, don't check out because I'm going to apply this to all of our relationships because I think this is a general principle that we can take from this. But they're talking specifically about romantic relationships. And one of the most interesting things I read about this, uh, the, the topic of kindness in this one article, was that a group of researchers claimed that they were able to predict whether or not a marriage would last long-term based on a very brief time with a series of couples. And one researcher actually claimed that they were able to predict the long-term success of relationships 
up to a 94% accuracy. And then they had da uh, data to back this up. And the main way that this team of researchers observed the health and predicted the long-term success of these relationships, listen to me, was based on the absence or presence of kindness in their words. That was what they were looking for. And so what they did was they broke up conversations among all these people into four basic categories. The first was passive destructive. The second was active destructive. The third was passive constructive. And then the fourth was active constructive. So I'll go through those real briefly. Passive destructive was indifference. Someone that you're in a relationship with is sharing something that's important to them, an opportunity, something that's just like they're looking forward to, and you just don't care. You're just indifferent to what's going on in their life. That was what they called passive destructive. Next was active destructive. So you have someone in your life that has a big opportunity, they're sharing something that's important to them, and your response is intentional meanness, cynicism, uh, excessive critique and excessive criticism, cutting down, feeling like you have to play the devil's advocate. They have a great opportunity and you feel like you have to like round them out or bring them back down or humble them or something like that. Active destructive. The third group, passive constructive. This is a little bit more vague and hard to define, but it was, it was indifference that appeared to care. Like, yeah, yeah, that's nice. Okay, changing subject. And then finally was active constructive, speech that was intentionally building up encouragement, hopefulness, uh, reassurance. I'm in this with you. I don't know how this is going to turn out, but we're going to do this together. God's got us. God's in control. Words that affirmed that God was in that person's life. Well, this wasn't a Christian study, but you can see where I'm going with that. And she said this, among couples who not only endure, but live happily together for years and years, the spirit of kindness and generosity guides them forward. Now, this is interesting to me. Again, this was talking about romantic relationships, but apply this to all of our relationships. And now let's apply this more specifically to our relationships within the body of Christ, to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how we foster thriving relationships that confront the harshness of this world. This is how we create a new and more beautiful culture in the midst of an unkind world. Only what is helpful for building up. It is not your job to tear people down and to cut them down to size. It is your job to build them up. Secondly, necessary. This is hard for us. <laughs> this is something that uh, we learn very on, and we have to sort of learn all throughout our lives. There's a big difference between want and need. Necessary. And the way to really navigate determining what is necessary requires wisdom. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge knows the right answer. Wisdom, however, knows when and how to communicate the right answer. Knowing the right thing is half the battle. And I think this is a really important lesson for us to learn. 
not everything that comes to mind needs to be said. Okay. Not everything needs to be said. Not everything needs to be said immediately. Not everything needs to be said on our terms. Is this necessary? That's the question we got to ask. Verse 29, the NIV translates it like this, only what is helpful for, for building others up according to their needs. So when I feel the need to like speak my mind, when I feel the need to speak my truth, whatever the heck that means, I need to ask myself the question, who is this actually helping right now? Is this just therapeutic, getting it off my chest? Is this serving them or is this serving me? I think we would find Quite often, the answer is me. Now, I understand this is particularly difficult in the 21st century because we have been shaped by a constant message of self-expression. If I feel it, I have to project it. That's only right. I feel something I got to tell them. In fact, this was really interesting to me, that there's a growing number of people that are defining self-expression as a modern moral virtue. So when you take something like self-expression and you begin to put it in the moral category, you begin to say, this is right, and to not express yourself is wrong and oppressive. Again, the question, though, is, is this necessary? And this is a big challenge for us as the church today, especially with a more recent emphasis on emotional health, the emotionally healthy church, the emotionally healthy spirituality and Christianity, which by the way, I'm all for. But I've seen it go a little far. And there's a big difference between needing to be emotionally aware of yourself and needing to make everyone aware of your emotions. There's a big, big difference. Being self-aware is absolutely necessary. You can't even grow in your faith without that. Making everyone aware is not necessary. Being self-aware, necessary. Making everyone aware, not necessary. And then lastly, gracious. Are these words gracious, that they may give grace to the hearers? Now, this is profound. Let me ask you a question. How does God minister his grace to his people? Grace is a, such an abstract thing. We, we throw it out, like, all is grace. What is grace? I, like, I don't know. Like, it's an abstract idea in our minds. But the question is, how does God take heavenly grace and get it into our lives today? Well, if I'm reading this right, according to Ephesians 4, he intends to do it through the kind words of believers. That's how he's getting heavenly grace into the lives of people. God has ordained that the sacred life of heaven touch our everyday lives through the speech of his people. Let the gravity of that just hang for a minute. And I think that we would begin really to see the gravity of our words very differently if we began to consider that whenever we open our mouths, God is intending to minister grace to others. In this moment, God is intending to get grace into the heart and into the mind and into the body of the person I'm about to speak with. 
God intends to minister his grace through his people. Now, one author describes someone's experience of coming into contact with the grace-filled environment that God creates among his people like this. He said, it's as if God simply changes everyone's topic of conversation from what's wrong with us, which is plenty, to what's right with Christ, which is endless. He replaces our negativity and our finger pointing and our self-hatred with the good news of his grace for the undeserving. No one was ever argued, intimidated, or bullied into transformation. No one has been, ever been manipulated into experiencing God's favor and grace and kindness. In fact, as Romans 2 tells us, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. There is a very large portion of the church that is convinced that they need to be like God's handler, like God's bully in this world, manipulating and arguing people into the fold. It's his kindness that draws us in. It's his kindness. How that changes our approach when we are interacting with people. They don't need my argument. They don't need my manipulation. They don't need my bullying. They need my kindness. They need the kindness of God. And really, it's that steady stream of kindness that begins to reshape our identity. Remember, we're dialogical beings, and all of us are carrying some sort of identity, negative, false self that was shaped by the people around us growing up. How does God change that? How does God begin to transform that identity? Here it is. Through the kind, graceful speech of his believers. You are beloved. You are forgiven. You are chosen. You are accepted. You are cherished. You are his. That's who you are. See how powerful that is? How much it combats all the destructive forces of unkindness in our lives. Now let's look finally at cultivating kindness. We've looked at what we shouldn't do. We've looked at what we should do. But how do we cultivate that in our lives? And let me say, that, say it this way. The, the way to be kind isn't simply to go make yourself a kind person. If you're hearing that this morning, just go be a kind person, you're hearing me wrong. In fact, this approach can be a really frustrating and disheartening process. There have been seasons in my life where I have just come face to face, been confronted with how unkind I am. And there are moments where I think I need to like dig deep. I just need to become a kind person. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I just get more discouraged than unkind. Because I'm angry about how I can't change. And I'm angry about how hard it is to be a kind person. But I got good news for you. The good news is that this is not what God is asking you to do. God is not asking you to go become a kind person. The way that we express kindness is first by learning to experience it. You can't give anything away that you haven't first received. What's the story of grace? And so when Paul is telling us to be kind, he doesn't appeal to your own ability to do something. He appeals to Christ. Look with me in verse 32. 
Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as Christ, or as God, rather, in Christ forgave you, as God in Christ has been tenderhearted with you, as God in Christ has been kind with you. And so Paul points us to the endless source of kindness. It's Jesus Christ. And so when we lack, you know, the motivation to be kind, when we lack the ability to be kind, when we are frustrated by how easy it is to cut people, when we're frustrated how easy it is to to tear people down with our speech, and when you're like me and you think back at all the unkind words that you've ever spoken and you begin to, to do all the mental math, you add up all, you know, the costs that are gonna be involved of sending five children through counseling for all of your unkind words. When you look back at that pattern and then you look ahead and you wanna be a part of actually shaping the landscape of conversation and actually changing the tide of unkindness and bitterness in the world, we remember this. Kindness does not begin with us. Kindness does not begin with me, trust me. It begins with Jesus. And in faith, we put our roots down deep into the good news of Christ, the good news of his kindness. Look at me in Titus chapter three. But when the goodness and loving what? Kindness of God our Savior appeared. So kindness personified. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What does kindness look like? It looks like the crucified and risen Jesus. And so where do we get it? We get it in him. He is the source. He is where kindness flows from. And this is the point I'm gonna keep coming back to unapologetically. This is the point we're gonna emphasize for every fruit of the Holy Spirit. Every fruit of the Holy Spirit looks different. Love, joy, peace, patience. It's expressed very differently. But every single fruit has the same source. It's intimacy with Jesus. Dane Ortland said this, all Christian toil flows from fellowship with a living Christ. He astounds us and sustains us with his endless kindness. Only as we walk even deeper into this tender kindness, that's where I'm calling you, deeper into this tender kindness, can we live the Christian life as the New Testament calls us to. Only as we drink down the kindness of the heart of Christ will we leave in our wake everywhere we go the aroma of heaven and die one day having startled the world with glimpses of the divine kindness too great to be boxed in by what we desire. What a vision for life, man. That's what it's about. Startling the world with glimpses of heavenly kindness giving men and women a sample of the wonderful, unending kindness that we have in Jesus Christ. Um, I got a really difficult text message during the first service, so I'm gonna try to keep it together. Um, So 
we've got a friend, actually one of Michelle's friends from, um, from the school that she teaches at. A couple years back, Michelle friended her, and through kindness, through the kindness of relationship, through the kindness of words, uh, was able to draw her into this community. She put faith in Jesus Christ. Last year, she got baptized. Um, I got to visit her a couple weeks ago. This morning, she went home to be with God. We have the God-given opportunity to shape someone's eternity through kindness. Where for this sister, death was not the final chapter, but the beginning of life. Don't sleep on kindness, friends. It's changing people's lives. I don't know what my eulogy is going to say one day, and I don't know what your eulogy is going to say one day. Maybe one day I'll read it for you. But I know that God has given us the opportunity today to shape the legacy of our tomorrow through cultivating the fruit of kindness. So here's where we're going, friends. This is where we're going as a church. We are setting out to startle the world with the kindness that we've received in Jesus Christ. You with me? Let's pray.